And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, December 26th, 2023. We trust you had a nice Christmas. Seven minutes past the hour, I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, a glance at artificial intelligence at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Plus, a federal auditor wins a prestigious award from academia. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, it's official. When federal employees open their first paychecks in 2024, they'll see a bigger number. President Biden signed off last week on that 5.2 percent average pay raise for most civilian employees, the final step to make the salary increase official for the general schedule. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman joins me for a recap. And this one is pretty big compared to recent years, isn't it, Drew? You could definitely say that, Tom. This is actually the largest pay raise for federal employees on the general schedule in 43 years. So if you think about that in practical terms, this is the biggest raise that any federal employee has seen in their entire government career, unless you've, you're someone who's been working for 43 years. Uh, the last pay raise to beat this one was 9.1% back in 1980 during the Carter administration. So it's quite sizable. And it also follows after a 4.6% pay raise that federal employees got at the beginning of 2023. And I'll just one other point I'll note here, Tom, this is the third year in a row now that you see the same pay raise for both civilian and military employees. Right. Yes. So in some sense, this is a reflection of the inflation that the country's had for the past couple of years, why this was an acceptable size raise. That is part of the way that the administration measures the what the federal pay raise should be. They look at the Employment Cost Index, or ECI, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics to help figure out what that raise is going to be for federal employees. For example, if you even if you look back at that 9.1% raise in 1980, inflation rates were quite high at that time as well. So this is similar concept here where they're trying to match that those inflation levels that were pretty high uh, last year. And when something happens like this or Congress passes a bill they like, some of the external groups like to, as they put it, applaud. And uh, virtually, of course, maybe they really applaud. But there has been some pretty good reaction among the organizations, the good government groups, and, of course, the federal employee unions. They're pretty happy about this. Right. And that's not a big surprise, Tom. I mean, you know, no one's going to complain about having more money or getting a pay raise. So I think, you know, a lot of unions and and federal organizations, as you said, are saying this is a great thing for federal employees. It's well-deserved. They also point to what they say is a wage gap between the federal and private sectors, That's currently actually at 27.5%, according to the Federal Salary Council. So there is kind of this welcoming of at least a bigger pay raise to try to at least get on the path to closing that gap and building more parity with the private sector there. And as we said, that 5.2% is an average, but then there is a variable in there that depends on where you are, locality pay. Tell us more about that. Right. So even though 5.2% is the number that everyone has been talking about, the actual raises for 2024 are going to range from about 4.9% up to 5.7%. And Tom, as you mentioned, that is based on federal employees' locations and where they're working. So for example, on the lower end of things, 
employees in Houston, Texas have one of the lower pay raises for 2024, whereas in Seattle, Washington, where you have a much higher cost of living, they're going to get a bigger pay raise next year. So this isn't always a one for one. There can be kind of some variations within that year to year. So last year, Houston was not the lowest locality pay area. But all of that really depends uh, based on the year, based on employment cost index levels, and it's it changes year to year a little bit. Right. And if you want to get a more substantial boost, you have to move up a grade even within your classification on the GS. Right. So those those wages are pretty much set by the Office of Personnel Management, the different grades and steps based on each locality pay area. And then within that, your manager or whoever could move you up a step if they were going to give you a bigger salary amount for the following year. And speaking of locality pay, that's one of those things that somehow spreads a little bit more every year. I'm waiting for the point at which there's more locality pay than average areas in the United States. As uh, there are four new locality pay areas coming, tell us about those, where they are, and what kind of uh, increase is going to happen there. Yep, there are four new ones. There's Fresno, California, Reno, Nevada, Rochester, New York, and Spokane, Washington. And they're all going to get just about the average, slightly above that 5.2%. So, for example, in Fresno, they're getting a 5.28% pay raise for 2024. And then the highest of those four is the Rochester, New York locality. They're getting just about 5.5% pay raise. So the idea there that when those pay localities or the new localities are established, it's due to uh, just a noticeable or a bigger federal private sector wage gap in those areas. And it has to go through a whole series of steps to get approved and finalized through OPM. Uh, But those four have been in the works for at least, I believe, the last two years I've been looking at establishing those pay rates. Right. Yes, it does take some research and there has to be some incontrovertible evidence that it really does cost more to live there. It's not just a hunch that people have. Right. And the Federal Salary Council, the president's pay agent, these councils, they you know look at and research the areas very uh, carefully and over a long period of time to see if that gap, that wage gap that they're looking at is sustainable and if it continues over a long period of time, or maybe it was just one year where it was more noticeable than others. So it takes a while for those things to to come into effect. And the pay raise occurs even if there is a continuing resolution that the government is funded under, correct? That's correct. There wasn't any mention of the pay raise in any of the appropriations legislation. So President Biden's signing of the executive order just last week is basically going to make this official no matter what. Right. Even if there's a shutdown, which people are talking about, People, a lot of people will not get paid during that shutdown, but they will get their back pay when it's over, which will reflect their wages as of January 1st, 2024. That's right. And Tom, I guess one other point that I should mention here is that technically the pay raise uh, goes into effect in the first full pay period of the new year. So for most federal employees in 2024, that's not going to start until January 14th. And then they're not going to get paid for that until about two weeks after. So we're really seeing maybe a three or four week wait period before the pay raise actually takes effect on those paychecks. So that's something to keep in mind as well. It's not happening right on January 1st. But of course, you make it up on the other end because it rolls into whenever the pay increase, if there is one for 2025, would come in. So you would still get 12 months of that amount of salary. That's right. You would get a full year of of pay of that uh, pay raise, Tom. Still, even if it's you still have to wait maybe a couple of extra weeks on the front end here. 
And let's face it, 5% is nice, but it's not going to it's not a lifestyle changing type of raise. It is a sizable increase, but if you think about the context here, inflation rates last year were I believe 9%, maybe even a little bit higher at certain months. You also have health premium costs going up by 7.7% next year. So there's a lot of variables to weigh on, you know, how much effect this is really going to have, but if you look just at the pay raise number, it is a a pretty historic raise. Yes. I was just making the point that you're not going to do well like, say, the CEO of a company that makes bad cars or bad coffee. <laughs> I, su- I suppose not. All right. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, as always, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And you can check out all of her coverage of the pay increase at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, a federal auditor wins a prestigious award from academia. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The chief operating officer of the Government Accountability Office has received recognition from a leading University of Public Administration program. Oris Williams-Brown, who's worked at GAO for more than 30 years, got the Excellence in Federal Leadership Award from the Public Administration and Policy Department at American University. Ms. Brown joins me now, and it's good to have you back, and you are now the, or have been for some time now, the Chief Operating Officer of the GAO, and tell us why they give you the award. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be back. And, um, you know, interesting question. So when I looked at the nomination, Gene Dodaro, the Comptroller General, nominated me for this award. With this award, they really look for two things. One, they look for executives that are really focused on executing the mission, carrying out an agency's mission. But also, and as importantly, they look for leaders who are focused on developing and investing in the next generation of leaders in their organization. That appears to be the big driver in terms of how I was selected to be one of the recipients of the award. And investing in the next generation, that means one thing in the private sector, in the public sector, well, you can promote people quickly and give them responsibility quickly. You can't give them stock options. You can't give them giant bonuses, maybe sometimes some something of a bonus, but not like corporate. And so maybe discuss what some of the challenges are in bringing people along where, well, you're not going to get triple the money here, but you'll get triple the responsibility. Yes. I mean, I think when people are attracted to public service, it really is about the mission of helping the government function. And in GAO's case, it's helping the government function for the benefit of the American people. So when I think about kind of that investment and in giving back to, to future leaders, it really is training, mentoring, coaching, ensuring that they're getting all of the tools that they need to effectively execute their jobs. And one of the things in having stewardship of GAO, I think, must be in your mind. It would be in my mind. Let's put it that way. And that is GAO has been relatively or maybe totally free of the kind of sort of periodic scandals and giant failures that plague almost every institution in public life, public and private. And the continuity of maintaining a certain level of standards and excellence, that's, I believe, is probably the chief challenge. What is the GAO thinking on that? 
So I think knock we, on wood, as they say. Yes, yes. We we continue to really focus as we bring people into the organization. There is a definite recognition that you're part of the accountability community, and we stress that we have to because we are going into other agencies. We're looking at what they're doing and how they're functioning. So we also have to make sure that we turn a critical eye internally and make sure that we are walking the talk. We recognize that we live in a glass house, and I think. We have to make sure that we are also being responsible stewards of the taxpayers' dollars. And that's something that we really do work hard to instill into folks when they come into the organization. And it's something that carries forward. In the decisions that I make, I'm always thinking, you know, yes, I'm Oris, the the GAO employee. But there's also Oris, the taxpayer, who's sitting on my shoulder saying, like, you know, is that the the highest, best use of taxpayer dollars? And GAO regularly finds things that are embarrassing, frankly, to agencies. And yet I've never heard a GAO person say, look what those idiots did. Or, and I imagine that's not what you say to them either. And do you ever, would you fire someone or do you watch for people that maybe take that attitude because, hey, I'm from GAO. How could you morons have let this program get to the state? It's always in a respectful way that problems are laid out with an objective issues tone and not a personal tone. Yes, because, I mean, we want to make sure one, that we are that we're being respectful we want to make sure that we are we mean it when we say we're here to help and that's what we let agencies know that we really are in the business of not only helping congress carry out its constitutional responsibilities but making sure that agencies are working efficiently and effectively for the american people and in order for us to do that we have to make sure that we are sharing what we find that's based on the evidence, letting the evidence speak for itself, and then also communicating in a constructive way. And we work hard to make sure that our engagement is constructive. We're speaking with Oris Williams-Brown. She's the chief operating officer for the GAO and the recipient of the Roger W. Jones Award for Excellence in Federal Leadership, given every year by American University. And you've been at GAO, I think, what, 30 years plus now. And give us a quick review. So I came to GAO directly from graduate school. I, unlike a lot of folks that that are going into public service today, I did not set out to be a public servant. I have an MBA. My plan was to work on Wall Street, and that was what I thought I was going to do with my life. I came out of graduate school at a time when Wall Street was really flooded with folks with lots of experience and MBAs and being a newly minted MBA and my job prospects on Wall Street weren't great at that particular time. I started thinking about other alternatives. GAO recruited on uh, campus and I went to an information session, was not familiar with GAO, didn't really want to work in federal service, but the mission of the agency intrigued me. So I thought, why not give it a try? Found out we had an office in, in Norfolk and it was close to Virginia Beach. And I said, maybe a cool place to work for a couple of years. And then, you know, move on to my intended career. But my very first week on the job, I knew this was going to be my career. The mission of the agency, very first week, you know, went on an interview to interview one of the local county executives 
the bill, the ability to get out on the audit trail and to be part of the accountability community and, you know, make sure that the government's being responsible stewards of the taxpayer money really spoke to me. So I grew up in the organization. I started uh, with an entry level position and I have moved up throughout the organization. I've spent a big part of my career doing work in the financial markets and housing area. And then as I moved into senior management, I spent several years in our Office of Congressional Relations before becoming the chief operating officer. So when I work with leaders, I can honestly say I've been where they are in many cases because I've done most of those positions in the organization. Do you ever think about the millions and billions you forewent? because you didn't stay on Wall Street or didn't join Wall Street and stick around? You know, sometimes, yes. But I think what I've gotten out of being a public servant, I think I have earned in many other more meaningful ways. And what's your best advice for those that are coming into the workforce now? They face an economy and a political situation in a future that probably didn't look as great to people like you that joined the workforce some 30 years ago or me close to 50 years ago. Yeah. No, it's different. But I think in many ways, many of the employees of the future are also not totally tied to the paycheck. They also want purpose in in their careers. And I think the government is a way to, to have that. You can have that purpose. And uh, if you want to have an impact on people's lives, This is a way to do it because the federal government, it touches so many aspects of our lives and in many ways kind of behind the scenes to make sure we are safe and taken care of. Oris Williams-Brown is Chief Operating Officer of the Government Accountability Office and recipient of this year's Roger W. Jones Award for Excellence in Federal Leadership from American University. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, irresistible forces are pushing on a seemingly immovable Congress. But first, a glance at artificial intelligence at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The intelligence community is pursuing artificial intelligence across its mission and operational domains. AI is opening new ways of understanding geospatial data, for example. I spoke with the research and development scientist for computer vision and machine learning at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, Natasha Krell. Here's an excerpt of that conversation. Okay, well, let's start at the beginning here. Tell us about research and development for computer vision and machine learning. Let's define what it is that your job actually entails. So speaking from a more general point of view, NGA as a whole within the AI space focuses primarily in machine learning and computer vision, specifically object detection for computer vision, as well as natural language processing. So my job as a machine learning and computer vision R&D scientist, I'm using ML and AI to basically find objects in overhead satellite imagery. That's a good portion of what I do in my day-to-day. And just a technical question to fill in my own understanding, natural language processing, how would that come to play in seeing something on an image and figuring out what it is? Because you can't ask it. 
Yeah, for sure. So natural language processing is gaining a lot of traction and attention out in academia and industry. I'm sure folks listening or reading about this have probably heard or used ChatGPT. And so there's some really interesting advancements happening in industry and academia, especially in the space within large multimodal models where you're using both text and imagery to perhaps query imagery and gain more insight from the machine learning generated output. In the case of the generative large language model artificial intelligence programs, the common description relies on these models using text and documentation, feeding it into the algorithm, and then it generates stuff. I'm putting it crudely, but basically that's how it works. Can the large language model, if you substituted the word language, which people tend to think of as text and written documents, can that also be large image library that could feed into a generative type of program? For sure. Yeah. So that's really the idea behind these large multimodal models. You're not only feeding in the text, but you also might be feeding in imagery such as remotely sensed imagery as a time series. Uh, You could also include other inputs such as video. It's really bringing together these heterogeneous data sets into a large foundation model. I do want to stress, though, that AI in general is not necessarily a silver bullet. So AI, machine learning, these foundation models, they really provide us with tools. So just have to caution that they're not going to necessarily solve all of our challenges. And there's also a lot to consider in the realm of security, bias, AI insurance, all of those aspects we have to both keep in mind and then balance with these exciting capabilities within foundation models and large multimodal models. And just looking at this again from, and we'll get back to that, but the standpoint of, say, satellite imagery, it seems like the NGA would have two challenges or anyone trying to figure out what's down there from images taken up there. One is to identify something that actually is an object that might be man-made. And then once you know, well, that's not a natural object, then identifying what it is. Am I putting it in ways that make sense? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I know that I've heard our director of NGA, Vice Admiral Whitworth, talk about finding needles in a haystack. And it's not necessarily just one haystack, it's lots of haystacks. So, you know, AI is really helpful for detecting those objects and then also classifying what they may be. And considering the deluge or large amounts of data coming from satellites, AI is really, you know, one tool in our toolbox to process all that imagery and gain insights from it. Right. You might have multiple sources of imagery. Some could be visual or optical. Some could be from radiation outside of the visible spectrum. And so you could put them all into an algorithm to calculate what it might actually be. Yeah, that's a great point. So kind of going back to this idea of large multimodal models, even within the realm of imagery, there's lots of different types, whether it's electro-optical, synthetic after radar, SAR, thermal, bringing all those imagery sets together in a large multimodal model is really the, I would say, the next stage and really the cutting edge of what's happening within AI. And a couple of years ago, I was talking to someone, I think from NGA, and one of the challenges was making sure that you could identify when something on the ground is in fact a circle, you know, as defined by geometry, all of the possible points that are equidistant from a given point as opposed to an oval or something else, presuming that's one of the grand challenges. What are some of the other imagery challenges that occupy NGA's thinking where AI might come into play here? I think 
in general, just the vast amount of data. And so data management, in particular, data storage infrastructure and compute are really important and can also kind of start to become expensive. So we can look at both on-prem as well as in the cloud opportunities for storage infrastructure and compute. There's many challenges, but I'd say that's one of the big ones. Yeah, so just the infrastructure to support all of this because AI is computer resource intensive, right? Yeah, and I also make the point too that people are really important. And so making sure that our workforce is trained and formed on AI and machine learning, as well as bringing in top STEM and AI talent into NGA specifically, but also as well as the broader national security enterprise. What's great, it's both a challenge and an opportunity. And so anything that we can do to bolster our workforce, both in terms of the folks already working in the SCIF to those that we're bringing inside is a really, really exciting aspect of this too. Yeah. And speaking of people, I would think that AI can really maybe help productivity of people that are analyzing the imagery because one of the objects of reviewing things in multiple images is finding out whether it's changed or not. And if it's something that is considered a potential threat, if there's a change there, an expansion of that spot on the earth, that might give people pause to take a closer look. On the other hand, you could save people from looking at the same thing over and over again because there's no change or it's been re-identified or something. And if that can be done in a way that you could assure that it really hasn't changed, you could save people a lot of time, I would think. Yeah. Yeah. I like the way that you frame that. I think that is one of the big goals as well as exciting opportunities about AI is, you know, helping people do their jobs better, faster. I mean, even kind of day-to-day things like supporting individuals who code and using large language models to help them create code. It's not that these models are going to replace us writing the computer code, but they can be a tool. And so I think one way that somebody put it recently, it's almost like, you know, a Word document processor. The Word document is not going to write the text for you. You still have to input it, but it's a tool that helps you complete your job. Yeah. So there's basically then a mission type of set of use cases for artificial intelligence. And then there's an operational efficiency of just keeping the agency running at minimal resources side to AI use cases. Two buckets. Yep, definitely. All right. And I want to get more into that second category, that is making things more efficient from an operational standpoint. And you talked about creation of code and writing of code. Tell us more how AI can operate in that particular activity, because you hear a lot about it, but not too many specifics. Yeah, for sure. And I'm not sure how much specifics I can give. I mean, I think the the example I gave before, it being a tool, like a, a word processor is good. And I think another way to frame it too, is like individuals still need kind of the foundational skills in knowing how to code. So, you know, having someone who doesn't code at all, you know, go straight to AI for code generation is not going to be that helpful. But if you have folks who already know how to code and then they're using, you know, these models to help them improve their code or sort of ask, you know, I'm stuck with this challenge, what would you recommend? I think that is much more instructive use and having good training and programs to get folks using code, interacting with machine learning as part of their day-to-day, I think that's also a really important first step. Right. So it augments their skill rather than does the work that they would do otherwise. Exactly. Yep. And perhaps in that area of augmentation, then, since so much of program development is the use and application and integration of open source components that have already been coded, perhaps AI can help people choose the best and most secure 
and most, you know, bulletproof maybe from a library of open source items that might do roughly the same thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it does. And you touched on a really important point, which is security. And this is something that's echoed and foot stomped in Biden's recent executive order, 14110, on safe, secure, and trustworthy development and use of artificial intelligence. This kind of direction coming from the top down is really important guidance for us in moving forward. And so, you know, you can't just take any machine learning or AI algorithm off the shelf. You really need to do rigorous verification and validation on those models and data that you're bringing in. And in the acquisition, say, of algorithms or related components that help you build an AI system, what's the strategy for ensuring security in that supply chain to the NGA? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, any security processes in the acquisition process are obviously really important. And then working with the guidance that's provided, such as in uh, Biden's EO, there's also some great guidance and documentation from the CDAO, the Department of Air Force Chief Data and Artificial Intelligence Office, as well as the Jake, the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center. So I think working together in this challenge with other components who are also faced with this challenge is really important. Natasha Krell, Research and Development Scientist for Computer Vision and Machine Learning at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Still to come, irresistible forces are pushing on a seemingly immovable Congress. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. What a mess. Border security, foreign military aid, and the lack of a full-year 2024 budget agreement have turned into a sort of Gordian knot for Congress, which is not around at the moment. Happy New Year indeed. For what could happen this week, we turn to Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And is there a way out of this? I mean, you just hear all these conflicting reports, but even members themselves say... We're not going to be able to get a budget done. That's right. I mean, they're gone this week and the week after that for the holiday season. Speaker Mike Johnson had made clear he wanted to send his membership home and did on the 14th. We saw the Senate in for a few days last week, but didn't really make progress on the big issues, both fiscal 2024 spending and then this border security and international aid package that really was the reason they had stuck around was to try to make progress on that. So we go into the new year without much clarity on what's going to happen on those issues, plus everything else that Congress needs to get done just in the routine order of business and other short-term deadlines they've set for themselves. So you're right, it's going to be a messy start to 2024 up on Capitol Hill. Could this be one of those situations where there's a sudden breakthrough in the impasse with respect to the border and what the border policy shall be? Because, you know, Chuck Schumer says, yeah, we're all for a better border, but within our values, whatever that means. And the Republicans say, we've got to shut this thing down so that there's not this influx. And maybe there is a middle ground that I mean, sometimes these things break just when they seem like they never will. I think that's true. I think there's two things. One is a list of principles that everybody could agree to, Republicans and Democrats and independents on the Hill working with the administration. And then what does the actual legislation look like? Because that was one of the sticking points last week was given the timing of where they were talking and and what they were talking about, there was concern about seeing the actual text, what the legislation does, because they want to get it right 
I think Chris Murphy had said they haven't really touched border legislation in 40 years because it is so tough to do. So I think that's one of the things that could make it difficult. If they got to agreement that a broad swath of the House and the Senate could both agree to, you can see a path forward. But getting to that point is going to be hard on this border and aid package, let alone the other spending talks that are also going on with seemingly not much progress. Because sometimes they seem to be talking at cross purposes. You know, the Republicans that are pushing for the border security, they see that as a national security issue. And therefore, the question is, well, if we're concerned with the national security of countries abroad, what about our own national security? And Democrats see it in a different colored light, you might say, as a border and immigration issue, but not a national security issue. I'm just guessing. But when they talk at cross purposes like that, that's what makes things difficult. And the linkage is also here because when President Biden requested money for Ukraine and Israel, there was also a request for money for the border to help with the different agencies that are dealing with the influx there. And in some ways that opened up for a discussion about with money comes consequences or responsibilities or oversight or even changes to policy that's for the people who reach our border or are trying to reach our border. So there was that natural linkage that started up, but the consensus is what's been hard here. Republicans in the House passed a bill this year, H.R. 2, that they've continued to try to push as their starting position. Um, Democrats in the Senate don't want to go to that extent, but as we saw with President Biden and the Homeland Security Secretary offering some Title 42-esque provisions, that's what they had used during the pandemic to keep people from crossing, you know, some sort of version of that could be in the mix still. So, you know, you've seen some movement, you've seen some sitting around a table before the holidays, and everyone says they'll get back to it as soon as they can. So we'll see if they can, you know, come to a consensus there. But it is going to be difficult. And just as an aside, here's what Virginia Senator Mark Warner said to WTOP's Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. Of course, I'm worried. If we get this through, it will clearly have to be broadly bipartisan. We've got to get it done. We're basically going to be dramatically changing not only border policy, but in many ways, immigration laws. And on the tie-in with foreign military aid. You can't say that Ukraine's a crisis, Israel's a crisis, the border's a crisis, and then not do our job. Virginia Senator Mark Warner speaking to WTOP's Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan, deputy news director at Bloomberg Government. And then there is the national budget for the government. And literally the day the House gets back is only a couple weeks until the shutdown deadline. And again, they're talking at cross purposes because, you know, one side doesn't want to do any more CRs and the other side doesn't like what the alternative to that is. And so the third way is a cessation of appropriations. That's right. And we have two deadlines coming up, January 19th, February 2nd. January 19th, to your point, is only two weeks after they get back from the holidays. And there's not agreement yet on what to do overall on spending, which makes it very hard to figure out what to do for each of the bills that are covered by those two deadlines. One of the things that seemed to be a challenge right before the holidays was they didn't even agree exactly what they had agreed on when they signed this debt limit deal. They know what the law says. They know what the spending caps in that measure were, but there's this notion of a side deal that President Biden and then Speaker McCarthy worked out for spending above that cap that you would offset with rescissions and other accounting mechanisms. And that's really a sticking point now is figuring out what did they exactly agree to and how could they move forward with that? It's really hard to write a bill unless you know what your target is. And until they resolve that and they headed into the holidays seemingly without a resolution, it's going to be difficult. So we could be facing a shutdown for some things on January 19th, others on February 
February 2nd. So it could be, again, a very weird late January with kind of this partial and then maybe complete shutdown if they can't figure out something to do. Your point about no more short-term CRs feels like a real one. Uh, the last two were hard to get over the line and cost one speaker his job. So uh, there's a lot at play there. And meanwhile, when you get into February, well, the next thing you know, the cherry blossoms are not far behind. And then there's April deadlines for several matters that they've got to deal with. Right. Two big ones coming up. One is March 8th. That's the FAA's authorization. So that agency receives funding, but its authorization is important because the ticket taxes it collects and are used to fund operations, those would all lapse on March 8th without some sort of action. And then on April 19th, that's the new deadline for the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, these important overseas uh, surveillance powers that people want to curtail as part of any long-term extension. So those are two deadlines that are not too long after the really big ones in January and February. All of those things have deadlines, and there will be some sort of vehicle to attempt to resolve that, and lawmakers are also going to look to use those to advance other things. One big thing is an unresolved tax package, revive some important business tax breaks like R&D. There's interest in getting that done as soon as possible. If they can stick it into one of these packages and get that over the line, they'll be looking to do that as well. Is there any controversy over FAA authorization? The House passed a bill on a really bipartisan basis, but in the Senate, there's been a holdup over pilot training requirements and some other language in that. So if the Senate can come to an agreement on what it wants to do with its bill, then maybe the House and the Senate can come together. They just haven't been able to get that done yet. But that's one that may have an easier path if they can work through some issues. And on the nominations front, those military holdups from Senator Tuberville, that's completely over now at this point. That's right. They made a last-minute deal last week to get the last 11 generals and admirals over the line, and then they also made an arrangement to deal with other nominations because there's a rule if you don't do something by the end of the year, you often send it back to the White House. They kept some of them in stasis, so they're still there in front of the Senate, and they'll be there when they come back. But then there were some nominations that they sent back to the White House. The biggest one was Labor Secretary nominee Julie Sue, whose nomination has been languishing in the Senate all year. The White House said they are intending to renominate her, um, and that could be another bruising fight over her nomination next year because it's also Democrats don't necessarily agree on moving her forward. At least one, Joe Manchin, has stood in the way there. So another big swath of work to do next year is to continue chipping away at those. Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Biden administration has ordered agencies to expand use of artificial intelligence in the coming year. Much of the work will depend on chief data officers, a relatively new addition to most agencies. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman joins me with more. And Jory, you've been following the data developments, the artificial intelligence developments, which in many ways are data developments. And let's begin with AI. How many agencies are already using AI, or is it all of them at this point? Well, certainly not all of them, but it is definitely in place at a number of agencies right now. We recently got some figures on this from the Government Accountability Office. They recently looked far and wide across all corners of the federal government, and they found about 1,200 use cases across agencies. Now, most of those are aspirational. About 16% of them they found are actually being implemented at some agencies and some of the agencies you might expect, places like NASA, places that are more science-oriented and have a federal R&D budget to 
kick the tires on these kinds of AI resources. And, you know, we had another way to look at this because CDOs are going to be in the driver's seat for a lot of this work uh, in the year ahead. We saw in a recent survey from the Data Foundation and Deloitte that more than half of federal CDOs say at their specific agencies they are today using AI tools. And that's a big jump from that same survey back in 2022 when about half of CDOs said they had no responsibility for AI tools. For a closer look at this, we heard recently from Rob King, who's the CDO over at the Energy Department, one of those techier agencies that is working with AI. He says that CDOs across the government are recognizing their emerging role in this space and that uh, data is going to be the foundation for AI success. Data can be that strategic enabler, and especially on the onset uh, of the emergence of AI, it's even more of an accelerator in terms of that strategic change agent. Well, he's right, because an AI algorithm doesn't do anything without data. It's like saying, you know, gas is the enabler of automobiles. I should say electricity nowadays, to be politically correct. And what do the CDOs themselves, these chief data officers, anticipate as their big challenges? Well, they have uh, some pretty common challenges here. About 40% of respondents uh, said that they actually feel successful today in implementing their agency mission. Uh, a lot of that has to do with, I guess, some clarity about that mission, knowing specifically what they're being tasked to do uh, and, and how that's going to further the mission of their agencies. They are pretty clear that they are the people in the, the wheelhouse of getting this AI stuff done because they said that about 90% of CDOs who took the survey they said that their data infrastructure is only a little or somewhat mature, and that's not good to your point about AI. That's like building the fastest bullet train and not laying a mile of track. You know, the data is the people, is the resource, the lifeblood of these AI tools, and so you really got to get that right before you get the AI implemented. Now, there is a chief data officer's council. What are they doing to kind of help out here? Well, they recognize, King recognizes that uh, this is the kind of thing where they can work together government-wide and have these common issues, so why not work on common problems? Uh, and that's not just some idle talk here. King is going to be part of the CDO Council leadership for the year ahead. He will be the vice chairman, and Kirsten Dalbo, who's the CDO over at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, she will be the new chairwoman of that council. And so... Uh, Having looked at this survey, they recognize where the kind of the pain points are, where they need to get work done, and ultimately make uh, CDOs feel like they have the tools and the resources to uh, make change in this space and just across all of their agency priority areas. And I've heard it said a million times, and I'm sure you have, that in this age of AI, they need a more savvy workforce in generally because the people on the line, the people doing the missions, carrying out the tasks, they're the ones that are going to be affected by AI, and often they're the ones that know the best use case to improve things with AI. So is workforce data savviness part of what you think agencies are thinking about? It definitely is, but it was very insightful to hear what King had to say about this, that agencies, by and large, they have been staffing up on the higher level of things that agencies have been bringing in CDOs, they've been bringing in data scientists, people who have PhDs and really are the subject matter experts in this space. But what agencies haven't done such a good job on is bringing in more of the rank-and-file data people, people who are data stewards or data engineers uh, who ultimately are a lot of the people who are creating the data in the first place. Uh, and King says that's a, a weak point government-wide that there's going to be some, there needs to be some added focus on. 
to be successful, you should resource three to five data engineers for every one data scientist to optimize the data wrangling and the data positioning to ensure data scientists can be effective. And we're seeing some you know, negative impacts by not making those investments in other data practitioner roles, namely the steward and engineer roles. And so we need to get back and start looking at what does it mean to be a data steward and what are the key skill sets and that's Rob King. He's the CDO of the Energy Department. And what do CDOs say about their own jobs? Well, another interesting insight from this survey is that uh, it's really unclear and it's not entirely consistent who CDOs report to across government. That changes considerably depending on what agency you're talking about. About roughly a third of respondents said that they report to their chief information officer. There's a a lot of overlap when you think about it with their two responsibilities. Um, but there was a 37% write-in option here. So that means that it's not the CIO, it's not the uh, agency head, it's kind of a, an other, you know, fill-in-the-blank type option there. And so uh, it's really not consistent who these people report to, but uh, the the work re- pretty much remains the same. And that's not necessarily a bad thing from the people who are working on the survey. They said that, you know, they want agencies to have this discretion to, you know, fit their unique missions here. Um, but that was a, an interesting point of contention. Also, this is just a big area of responsibility uh, for a relatively new position across government. You know, we saw only in the past five years this be a position that's mandated across each agency. So they are still very much the new kids on the block. Uh, But the people actually in the CDO roles are not so new. Uh, The vast majority of them have 10 or more years of experience in the federal government. So new to this role, but not new to government. All right. So if you take a CDO job, the first thing to ask is, who am I going to report to? And that'll give you some idea of where the agency places the value because that that determines where they put it in the org chart. Right, right. And get back to challenges here. A lot of these CDO shops, you know, the staffing is in the single digits. So it can be a little lonely at those CDO shops. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out all of his data coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn.